It's my great pleasure to introduce our moderator, Mr. Chris Jones. He is the chief theater critic and Sunday cultural columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And let's give a shout out to a newspaper that still has a... Natural <laughs> <laughs> credit. Natural <laughs> <laughs> <An> credit. <laughs> He has reviewed culture, the arts, <laughs> politics, and entertainment for over 16 years. His arts criticism has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the American Theater Magazine, and more. Before joining the Tribune, Jones wrote for Variety and Daily Variety, and he was, has twice served on the drama committee of the Pulitzer Prizes. Please give a big welcome to Chris Jones. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Well, good morning. How is, how is everybody doing? Good, good, good. It's great to be here. Uh, let, me, uh, let me just give a little, uh, just so you know who everybody is. Uh, on my far right, Christina King Miranda is a Fulbright Garcia Robles scholar and a binational independent performing arts producer and consultant. Most recently, she served as the director of cultural promotion for no less than Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Relations. So let's welcome Christina. Thank you. In the middle is Leslie A. Ito, President and CEO of the Japanese American Cultural and Community Center in LA. She was recently awarded a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation, for which she's now researching how ethnic-specific organizations can reinvent themselves for a new generation in a changing social context and cultural ecology. So let's welcome Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, Randy Korn, the founding director of Randy Korn and Associates, a museum planning firm that partners with cultural organizations to create new services that help them excel. She's been an executive director, an exhibition designer, an interpretive planner uh, of art, history, science, and natural history museums, and is a fascinating thinker on museums' relationship with audiences. So let's hear a hello to Randy Korn, everybody. <laughs> Okay, so uh, uh, hopefully we'll have a lively chat. I like to think of myself as a, I have a low tolerance for getting bored, so we'll, uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll have, a good, we'll have a good conversation. This is a topic near to my heart. When you're a critic, uh, you focus almost entirely on audiences because your primary, um, your primary responsibility is to audiences. And uh, I've seen lots of new tensions arise over what an audience wants now, how audience behavior is changing, and I'm of the opinion that it's changing pretty drastically at the moment. Uh, so I thought, you know, there's just lots of interesting things to talk about. So I guess if I look in my little schedule here, it says that the title of my panel here is What Does the Public Want from the Arts? So let me start with Christina. Does the public know what it wants from the arts? <laughs> What does the public need from the arts, I would think, is the way to go. Does it know? Does anybody, do we really know? I think yes. I think yes and no, because we really have to think about what does the public need from the arts? What are we talking about when we talk about a public? What are we talking about when we talk about an audience? We're talking about communities of people brought together by shared experiences, um, in a context where you can converse, where you can dialogue, as cultural workers, 
is to work with, is to define the human beings that comprise an audience, a public, what are we feeling, what are we thinking, what, are, what is our commonality to eradicate that I versus we on stage, that I, what is our commonality of, dif our, of differences, of shared experiences. So I would say that we need to first look about and think about who are we as an audience? Who are we as a public? What do we need? We need connection. We need dialogue. We need to find points, whether it's through, uh, through our political perspectives, our ethnographic perspective. We have to become kind of cartographers of our own experiences in our communities. That's what I would say. What do you say, Leslie? Does, it, does the audience know what it wants when they come in, walk through your door? Um, I think the audience, I think it's really about uh, the space that we create, and um, it's about space making. Um, that How are you defining space? Mm -hmm. You mean in the physical space? I think physical space as well as um, the space that they come with, um, the experiences that they come with, and um, providing, and as, uh, as cultural producers and space makers, what kind of space are we creating so that they can then be their best participant? Um, I think that that's really important. Um, I also love uh, what Gregory said about building communities, not audiences. Um, and I think that at the Japanese American Cultural and Community Center, that's very much what we're doing, is we're building and empowering communities to come and tell us what they want and, and what they need from a cultural experience. Randy, you care a lot about audiences. It's I kind do. of your whole thing, really. I do, and I've studied them in depth, and <laughs> I've spent my entire career doing that. And I would say that's probably not the, exactly the right question to be asking, <laughs> um, because what we've learned over time is that they actually don't know. And there's a lot of reasons why they don't know what they want, but a little bit has to do with the way that we ask the question and the time frame in which we ask it. There's really not time for them to think reflectively about what they might want. But, but that said, I actually think it's the wrong question, and, and this is why. Um, our research shows that the memorable experiences that people have. And again, I only work in the museum context. So you can, as, as most of, the, of you in the audience, I suspect, are work in the performing arts realm, think about what I'm saying in the context of the work that you do. Um, but most of our research in museums indicates that memorable experiences are created from um, being surprised by what they see. Being surprised when they get there? Being surprised, so they come maybe for a specific reason, Yes. And that's, that's, you know, kind of uninteresting to them because they, they see that it's an expectation. And really, it's not about meeting people's expectations. It's about exceeding them. So, so, if, so if, I go in, like, if I go in the Art Institute of Chicago and I go in to see, uh, you know, Sunday or the Grand Jart, then I'm just going to see that. That's not going to excite me. Right. They have the to give me something I, don't, I didn't know? That you didn't know. And we, don't, we only know what we know, so there's, you know, there's the tension there. So asking that question, what do you want, is not going to actually provide a provocative response from the audience's perspective, but also from the professional's perspective. Well, I also think, just adding on, we need to put on the table what we don't want is this discussion about buying and selling of a commodity. The buying and selling of a commodity of a product. We're, we're surrounded. This is our society that we're that we're in. This 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 the sale, the branding, the marketing. This is about 
sharing and creating an experience about harnessing the creative energy of artists and strengthening the, the voices of our creative community and our artistry to bring, to have that moment, that live experience, to, to think more, it's not about trading goods and products, it's about exchanging feelings, uh, uh, perspectives, uh, and it's about debate, conflict, pain, and dialogue. Right, that's but, what I Wait, 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 debate, say that again? Debate, conflict is okay too. It's about talking about pain as well and what you're going through in a particular moment, experience. It's about the universality of your feelings being expressed, being able to communicate how, how you're living your everyday life and how you're connecting with others. I mean, I think that that's what I want when, you, when I'm an audience member going to see a show or participating in a, a street performance or, or walking into a museum venue. It's, it's feeling connected, it's feeling like my voice is being seen as a, as a Latina, my stories are being heard. Um, my, my vision of the world. It's, it's about that diversity in the most deepest sense of the word. What about the argument that I sometimes find myself in with, uh, shall we say, younger, younger artists, that the tension, let's call it a tension, between what an audience wants, that an artist should spend some of their career focused on, or a presenter, or, the, mm -hmm. or a museum director, should be focused on what is it that the audience wants when they come in, versus the artist who says, I don't care what the audience was. I, my job is to tell my story. And whether or not they get it is sort of their problem. Uh, what I want is I want to say what I have to say. Now, that, I, I, let me just suggest that that tension's always been there. But it seems more acute now that there are a good number of art folk who are not particularly interested, I would suggest, in what an audience wants. Would you agree or disagree with that? Or what do you think about that? Again, from a museum context, and Michael mentioned this, he mentioned docents and educators, and so there's the space of the audience, there's the space of the museum. Then to me, there's the space of helping the audience have that experience and understand perhaps the artist's intention. I believe and I value the artist's intention, um, but I think also, and I know from research, that sometimes the public actually wants help figuring out mm -hmm. that it's actually okay to feel scared. Absolutely. It's okay to... On the part of the audience. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. I, I think most people don't know that that's, that's, an, that's a fine emotion to have. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. fine, but, you know, it's acceptable. And um, I, I think the public sometimes needs help knowing that it's okay to feel the way that you do, and that response that you have is the experience. So, I, I mean, I think they, you know, audiences sometimes come in with too much up here, and forget that there's the heart and what they feel, and it's the combination of the two that can help them uh, uh, sort of, um, that can deepen their experience and help them articulate it. I think they need help in articulating what it is they're feeling and processing what they're feeling. And so cultural organizations may need to understand that not everybody is like them, and that there's some assistance that may be needed to bring people uh, and help them feel good about however it is they feel about the Is that the responsibility seeing. of the artist or the administrator around the artist? I, I think um, it's a hard question to answer, <laughs> but... Um, or both. So, I think so both. some art museums yeah. work with the artist, like the Whitney works with the artist and um, helps, I, I think, uh, the artist understand that if you have a concept, let's, let's work with you 
and helping the audience understand that. I mean, I would think that an artist might want that if they have, if there's an intention that they have. Okay. Leslie, do you say, do you say to artists who want to come in your theater, okay, this is our audience, this is our audience, or do you say, you do what you do, our audience just likes all kinds of different things? What? It's an interesting question because we've been um, presenting more non-Japanese artists you know? on our stage um, to connect with the rest of Los Angeles. Um, but one of the things that I've been doing um, is trying to ground them first in the Japanese culture. So this latest iteration of our Aratani World Series, um, where we program um, world dance and music um, we brought them in, the artists in, for orientation um, that started with a tea ceremony and really wanted to ground them in Japanese traditional culture and values um, so that they understand the space and the history of the place that they are performing in. And hopefully that connection will help them to, um, to connect and connect better with the audiences. So, but it's, it is a question that I've been grappling with, particularly with the tea ceremony. Um, do we let them, let the audience experience first and then explain what just happened or explain and then experience? Right, right. Chicken or an egg thing. <laughs> Christina. Yeah, maybe kind of adding on maybe the audience, this, this mancuerna, this, this, this collaboration has to happen where the audience is in a way for lack of a better term, kind of the binoculars and you as the presenter or as the, is the radar. You're the radar, you're behind there, you're kind of, of really going in. I mean, when, I, when I'm working to produce a festival or a particular project, I go in and I go deep into a into my particular community, whether it's doing a Baroque festival in the state of Puebla or a, um, a parade for the Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead in Mexico City. You, you, you talk to who, you don't assume your audience says, I remember my, my mom used to tell me, and I'm sorry for the bad word, but you know, assuming ass makes an ass of you and me, assume, sorry, but she would say, <laughs> you really have to be careful about assuming your audiences. I mean, I do a lot of work, and I think a lot of my colleagues do as well. You, talking to, if you're talking about a youth project for youth musicians or, or DJs or a happening, go talk to, you know, the friends of your 17-year-old or your 14-year-old, that kind of a, that kind of thing. You really have to be very focused and, and generous, I think, as a, as a cultural worker and for my end as a presenter, generous and respectful of the, of not traversing, of disrespecting your, uh, an aesthetic border or a geographic border, or, or a visual border as well. So I've like become sort of fascinated in, in how audiences are changing. So let me give you sort of, here's, a, here's a some ways I, I think they are. Uh, Derek Thompson, the writer in The Atlantic, was writing recently about one of the most dazzling phenomenon that we've all seen in the last year, which is the collapse of retail. So the idea of going shopping seems to be very rapidly on the way out. Um, and uh, I, I, I work on a big shopping street, Michigan Avenue in Chicago, and so I, I see these, these stores change over from places where you buy things to places that offer experiences, essentially. And one of the points that Thompson made in this interesting article recently was that most museums and arts institutions have figured out that it's good to have 
a hashtag to share or you know, have some level of interactivity that's possible. But what Thompson argued is that the current, the new generation of consumers is actually choosing their activities based on shareability. So in other words, they, they are saying to themselves, I am going to do this because it, it makes a good Snapchat story. Or I, in other words, it's actually the choice is driven by shareability. So I wanted to start with you, Gosh. Randy, about that, because you're a, this, is a, 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 this is a sort of fascinating, fascinating idea. So uh, before I say this, one of the conclusions that led me to a little was we have a, a Mish Kapoor sculpture in Millennium Park in Chicago that's done mm -hmm. very well, and it's because it's so shareable. You can, you can yeah. take photos of it in lots of, if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about, but it, you can, it's very shareable. So he was arguing that you can forget retail, no, one's, no one wants anything anymore, they don't want to buy things, they want experiences, so you think, okay, that's good for the arts, but what's maybe bad for the arts, arguably, is that they constantly, they're, they're only going to do it if it creates a shareable experience, not as an add-on, but at the core. So how the heck do you adjust to that? I guess, is it true, is question A, and if so, how do you adjust to it? Well. I may be too old to answer the question, but um, so I, I see it that as backwards, actually. Um, I, I think that the experience is primary, and if you, if you approach it as um, wanting to achieve depth of experience, like I, I know there's a lot of chatter about broadening experience, but I broadening. actually think, yeah, yeah, broadening, but I actually think that's not what we ought to be thinking about, we need to be thinking about deepening experiences. So to me, if you provide a deep experience and allow that to happen, that's shareable, depending on the person, the, on the recipient. But I, I think, you know, and I apologize to all you younger folks that actually may <laughs> think it's about shareability, but, um, and I apologize. But there, to me, there's a superficial quality about that, yes. which is actually not the intrinsic value of the arts. So, um, the arts are not a, should not be reduced to shareability. No, I'm not saying they shouldn't be reduced, but I'm not saying I'm saying that that's not the first thing on the list. That should not drive your 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 work and your agenda. Um, your agenda needs to come from within, and if it happens to be shareable, then it will then it will be shared. But that's not how you should make your decisions. It's just a little backwards to me. Okay. Yeah. Christina, what do you say about that? I'm trying to figure out the whole shareability concept. The shareability well, it's like it's like I don't I don't want to go into I, I don't want to go to an event that you're doing if I can't create a good social media experience for myself. Right. Is that that's why I want to go. So if I'm faced with that or something else, I'm going to choose something else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> well, and I think, I mean, maybe where we're, we're going, I think there's a lot of competition for choice, for one's free time, for what one is selecting to do. Is that where, kind of where we want yes. to go with this? To decide whether you're going to go to, I mean, to a live performance, or you're going to go see a show, or you're going to stay home, and, and I do this a lot, and you're going to watch Netflix, or you're going to chat on social media. And I, and from my, and I'm doing it from the performing arts perspective, there's nothing like that live moment, like that, that live experience and, and creating even, and creating that moment where 
you're sharing knowledge, you're sharing, you know, a lot of my work is about contextualizing and providing context for the work that I'm placing on a stage or that I'm presenting to people or how I'm speaking with an artist about a project. It's all about context, about talking about the history of that piece or of the work, the, the conditions, the working conditions, the, the vision. Um, all of that uh, is with the afan, with the bent to create, to have not spectators for the arts. Again, I'm, I'm going back to this commodity thing, the exchange of goods, not spectators or this kind of butts in seats, but knowledgeable, engaged, thinking, critical uh, individuals. And I know that sounds really um, a little bit ridiculous, but we really need that. We, we really need to have more on the table these uh, today, more uh, discussions that about or works that project uh, ambiguity, paradox, contradiction, mm -hmm. to really have uh, serious dialogues about, about ethnicity, about borders, about transculturation, about our, our world. So to me, shareability, going back to that, you're sharing you're through, and, and social media is a great way to do it. I, I learn a lot and I see a lot of work, uh, not only um, live, but also seeing what's going on, sharing the, um, the visual that you can speak so much more and reach so many more people with Instagram. I use Instagram a lot mm. and Facebook, but I really think we need to go back to that, to transcending, to, to forging identity, to being a place that experience, that live experience is a sanctuary for you. When you go into something, or even on social media can be a sanctuary too, but it is about sanctuary. It is about taking that moment to, um, to think about your, your, your place. So you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, I mean, you've yeah. obviously you've got a lot of experience in government arts, you know, as a, as a government official working in cultural policy. So bit, yeah. I, I guess I'm, say, I'm, I'm hearing, I think, you're saying this is an ethical responsibility of the arts to create that doing these works that project ambiguity creates better citizens. Is that sort of what you're saying? That we, we have this ethical responsibility? I think um, actually from the, not, from the governmental and the, the non-governmental perspective, we have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility, absolutely. And, uh, and, by, and, and as presenters, I'm saying, not as a government worker yes. necessarily, yeah. as a person who's working with artists, what you present, what you communicate, works that incite thought through the projection of um, issues of paradox, contradiction uh, are essential, and it is our responsibility ethically. So, totally. so, so if you look out there at all yeah. the people who do the bad things in our world, then th these acts are not generally perpetrated by people with clear senses of ambiguity and complexity. Wow. That would be, I mean, that would be true, right? I mean, the, it would be, but it's so, I mean, not. I guess, <laughs> I, but it's not. Yeah, no, I get where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie, what do you th think about this? Um, I guess I'm a bit of a bridge generation, um, so I understand what you're saying, um, but uh, I'm reminded um, just two days ago I went to visit the California African American Museum and they have a exhibition on the 1992 civil unrest in Los Angeles. Um, and as soon as I stepped into the gallery, I, they have these huge large scale from floor to ceiling um, photographs and big um, quotes and images, and I thought, okay, this is 
they created this because it's Instagrammable, um, and um, and you know, and so my hope as an optimistic uh, bridge generation person is that yes, people are going to take photos and it's going to go on Instagram and they're going to hopefully come and see the exhibition because it's a great exhibition um, that it'll it that the technology mm -hmm. is merely used as a way to spread the word and communicate. It's a tool. It's, it's a, a tool. Yeah. But to me, um, tools change. Yeah. And what will never change is the, um, the experience one has either at a performance or in front of mm -hmm. original work of art. Yes. That's, thank God, that's not going to change. Yeah. Um, and so the tools will change. And I don't know that we should be organizing our organizations around supporting those kinds of things because we know with technology it's, it's you know once you figure out how you're going to get mm -hmm. things that are shareable then the whole thing is going to be different and would that be like just a quick thing that because i went to the was went to the broad i was called the the broad that's a phenomenon i understand here in la the the, the broad the way that i mean may, i'm just curious as to obviously not here, but about this shareability and about social media. I mean, a lot of what I'm hearing from colleagues is the broad is constant, is filled. I mean, there's lines because of the selfies that everybody's right. taking in front. Right. So that's a, to me, that's a huge phenomenon. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a whole different way and context that I'm used to working in. And that is, move, and that is moving forward into the future. I mean, the broad is really an interesting um, example. A whole lot, you know, another little, this is no. sort of around the same, uh, what about the death of appointment viewing? Now, what, what I mean by that is that mm -hmm. a lot of people in Hollywood would tell you that the idea that people are going to go to a movie at 9.30 in about 10 years is going to be completely gone. The, the, the younger generation doesn't want appointment viewing. And I, I always think, you know, there are some producers I know on Broadway who are terrified of this trend, who are convinced that once people get out of the habit of appointment viewing, it's going to be very difficult for the performing arts. In other words, people will get out of the habit of going somewhere at 8 o'clock in the evening to see maybe, Leslie, one of your shows mm -hmm. in your theater. So how, you know, there's sort of two views on that. One, one view is that the arts, people will, uh, people will return. It's sort of the high-tech, high-touch argument from the 80s that some, I remember reading John Nesbitt, I think, right, used to wrote about the more, the more isolated we become, the more we crave the arts. But some people now are saying, yeah, not, not really so much, because once, a point, once people are out of that habit, it's going to be hard for the arts. What do you think about that? It's a bit of a doomsday scenario, mm. I know, but are people still going to come? I think it's interesting to, to ponder, because I do think that you know, we're, we're at a point where we want everything on demand. Yes. Um, and uh, it makes me think, you know, do, we, do we produce art at non-traditional times um, yes. and, and what, what might that look like. Mm -hmm. I don't, but it reminds me of a, um, and, and I think for every community it's different. So I think there was a exhibition, I think at the New York Historical Society where um, they did a photography piece on taxi drivers in New York. And they knew that that particular community couldn't come see this exhibition about themselves. So they opened the gallery once a week um, between the hours of like 2 and 6 a.m. Um, and that really stuck with me yeah. because I think it's really about what community are we trying to reach and how do we reach them 
perhaps it's outside of this sort of conventional um, construct that we have for cultural institutions. Yeah, the, the Dallas Museum of Art, when I was doing this research on engagement, um, they were celebrating, I think it was their 100th anniversary, and um, they stayed open for 24 hours. And that was an epiphany for them of what, what happened during that event, and people who had never come before came. So now, I don't know if they still do this, but for a long time, they were open um, 24 hours, um, one, day, one day a month, and it was the first Friday of every month. Um, offering insomniac tours and things like that. <laughs> it was great, and, and you know, Starbucks had um, had uh, uh, supported their events, and I th they had coffee tasting. I thought, well, that is so brilliant, you know. But so we collected data during one of those 24-hour periods, and it was interesting. People said, you know, because of my hours of work, I could never really <coughs> come, and this allows me an opportunity to come. Right. And so it, and I think there are probably museums in this city that probably followed suit and. Um, did that, and so it, it's, it's not, you know, so it's creative programming um, that I think will, um, if you will, broaden, I'm going to contradict myself for a second, but broaden the audience in an effort to deepen their experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's mm -hmm. important. And, but, but I also want to say that with every new thing that has come on, there, people try to predict the future and say, well, you know, online, classrooms will completely get rid of the, you know, four-year university experience. That, in fact, has not happened. Right. Um, and that when videos came out back in the day, people would stop going to see films. That actually has not happened. So I think that there's a lot of these predictions, and if things are going to be changing, uh, probably in, I won't be able to see them in my lifetime because the mm -hmm. change is, like, at a snail's pace. But, so. but like, some of your clients, right, have stuff in them. Like, you're, there's a museum with stuff that is its existence was driven by somebody's desire to get, leave their house, go to a museum, see the stuff in a case, right? We're now at the point where you can get a pretty darn close facsimile of that without going to see the stuff. So if you've got a museum full of stuff that's not interactive, how are you going to survive that? Well, I can tell you what our research says. Yes, go ahead. It is the stuff. It's that the stuff. is the driver. It's yeah. the stuff. It is the stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so as long yeah. as I've been collecting data, that, has, that is a constant. It has not mm -hmm. changed. What is it? To actually be in the presence of it? Or? Yes. To be in the presence in, in a history museum, to be in the presence of General Washington's uniform. Um, in an art museum, to be in the presence of whatever work of art has struck you. It's, there is nothing like it, and you know, people can argue with me, and <laughs> I, 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 the, the, the visitors tell me the truth, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it is the stuff. I mean, just, just the example here, imagine us having this conversation on Skype, on video, all of us. I mean, I really, this is what Zocalo Public Square did is about engagement. You, you walk in, the music is pumping, the tables are set up so you're really kind of having a dialogue. For me, coming from presentations in Mexico City, I was commenting it with my colleagues, where you come and you set up your laptop and you project and it's formal. I mean, that's about creative programming. It's about this stuff because this wouldn't be happening if we were all in a video Skype call, that, Skype call, that dynamic of just coming together, seeing different faces, talking about different aesthetics. I mean, that's, I think, just at a very basic level, and we're living it, is engaging, connecting, and, and making, um, making it an experience. Right. 
And I, I think it's also about the intimacy of being with the stuff. So um, stuff. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about scale and impact. Um, and you know, you talked about butts in seats. Mm -hmm. um, I was sharing earlier um, with other panelists that I went to Kyoto and um, to a new theater called the Butokan. Um, and it's a theater, the performance space is no bigger than this table. And, um, and there were really? nine, <laughs> and there were wow. nine cushions, nine <laughs> zaputon around, um, and the performance happens right there, 45 minutes. Um, and so I was thinking, what would it look like if we did performances like that? 45 minutes a piece, 24 hours, um, and what kind of impact would we have on those audience members versus programming one night, 880 right. seats? Yeah. I mean, I right. think I had, I took three breaths in 45 minutes because it was so riveting. Right. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about scale and intimacy. I think that's yeah. a really good point. You know, um, often, well, forever, the metrics of success have been how many? Mm -hmm. and how big and more that is, is actually more. No, more is just more and it's really not about how much it's really about depth okay but let, let me just to play counterintuitive so Leslie I'm guessing you have a board of directors right and so the, the, you probably have to do a report for those board of directors and you have to say look all these people uh, all, all these people came to the Japanese American Cultural Community Center if all, so Randy is sort of saying and you in a lot of your work you say it shouldn't be about how many it should be about the people that came, how deep was their yeah. engagement. Mm -hmm. So what are the tools that you have for people like Leslie and maybe people in the, uh, in the audience who, who agree with you but have to answer to external constituencies that demand to see numbers all the time? Right, you have to educate them. And that yeah. work will never end. I'm telling everybody in this audience, <laughs> that work will never end. Um, you have to constantly educate uh, your boards and, and even your staff and change the way that you um, review them. You review them by how big and how, how many, how many programs and how many people. That metric has to change. And so it's like throughout the whole system, we have to change how we talk about the arts and the effect of the arts. It's, I, I'm not saying numbers are unimportant. They're, they're very important. But, in the, they're, they're, but they, their importance is bolstered when you talk about the qualitative effects of the arts on people. Um, and so, so, you know, when we do research, um, and, and even when we work with organizations and try and help them think about impact-based planning and do that work, we talk about their passions. We, 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 we ask them to talk about their passions. I have never heard a museum director gush over how many jobs he or she has created in his or her city. I have never heard a museum educator gush when they gush uh, 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 if they're talking about um, uh, connecting their collection to the curriculum. They don't, that's not what makes them gush. What so makes them gush? When they talk about the value of a work of art and the impact that it can have, have and change someone's lives. But co connecting to the curriculum is, is not the intrinsic benefit of art. But, but we're forced to talk about it. So anyways, these, these guys are all saying these things because they feel that's what they're expected to say, but really it's not in their heart. Right, so we have to change, we have to change the narrative. We have to create the language to help us be able to talk about it much more um, uh, naturally. I think also, we, if I can yeah. change kind of the, the paradigm, when we talk about arts, education, and educating, 
what, is, what are we talking about when we talk about art and culture? Culture is our everything. It's not an accessory. It's not um, the first thing to be cut from a primary school education budget. I mean, we need to really think hard about what being a cultural being and that sharing of an experience with another human being to understand that human being means. And I think that, that that's it, how we need mm -hmm. to talk about that's, it. Yeah. That's how we need to, need to be talking about this, talking about it also so that the funding is also put into place. Um, we don't have a, in the US, you don't. Now I'm, I'm putting on my Mexican hat because it is my hat, it's a hybrid hat. <laughs> uh, and in, in the US, you don't have a ministry of culture. Oh. A, a, right. a, a ministry of culture. And in, in Mexico, we have, you know, a ministry of culture. And many countries, the British Council, and in the US, we don't. So what importance are we, uh, on the one end, the government entities, and are putting on culture as are everything as human rights, as peace, as social justice, as economic, as creative industries. What importance are we putting there on, on, on culture as, as the total? Right, so, the so the big we, everyone in this room, needs to help others understand that culture is how we live our lives. It is not a separate thing. So, so I recognize this is a really broad question, but everyone's sitting here, so <laughs> in, in, in simple terms, Randy, like how, uh, how, do you, how do you measure deeper engagement? Like, in other words, if I, if I walk in, I have a cultural experience uh, tonight somewhere in L.A., how are you measuring the depth of my, in simple terms, how are you measuring the depth of my experience? Um, qualitative research, conducting one-on-one -on -one interviews with people, um, which is laborious and it takes time. Um, and so you can't talk about conducting research without talking about who's going to fund it. And there's the sticky wicket. Um, you know, as I become frustrated with the field that I, my chosen field. Um, uh, <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Um, so at, at one point, it was about 10 years ago, uh, when the frustration was mounting, um, where I tried to find a funder to fund the research. So. Uh, art collectors would much rather donate their, their works of art to a museum than fund research to look at how those works of art affect people's lives. Mm. Why? Well, what? because they get a, they get a tax write-off. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Um, and, um, you know, it's really hard. And, and in the government sector, 10 years ago, they just weren't there yet. NEA just wasn't there yet mm -hmm. to begin to look at globally the effect of the arts on people. It's done program by program, and that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about collectively. We need to be able to fund research to help us develop the language of the intrinsic benefits of the arts. And so we're, we're just not there yet. In 1994, Gifts of the Muse was published. Um, it was a uh, done by RAND Corporation, which I understand is here in California, mm -hmm. to look at the intrinsic benefits of the arts. What did they find? Sadly, very little. What happened? Sadly, very little. So we're, we're just not there yet. I, I, I do think you know, it's just a very slow slog through all of this to get to a point where someone's going to say, a very rich foundation is going to say, yeah, let's fund this because the arts are of such value to a community, and it is the culture that, it, 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 you know, I, I hate to think about what the American landscape would look like if we took away museums and we took away public art and we 
took away the people who value this. I mean, sad, it would be a sad, sad landscape. So you can't, in order to measure depth of experience, you have to talk to me. I do have to talk to you and I have to have deep conversation with you. Right that and night, same night, or can you call me a week later? <laughs> I could call you a week later, I could knock on your door. It's, it's social science research, you know, that, um, that just takes a really long time. And, you know, we're an impatient Leslie, what about you? Do you do that research? Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, it is, it's a, it's a catch-22, and we're talking about under, mostly under-resourced institutions and tiny cultural organizations. It, it does come down to that funding, and it is a, a public policy issue with regards to grant-making, I think. Um, when a funder asks you, um, you know, there's that formula, how many are you reaching per head, and that's divided by the amount of money that you received, and then there's a per capita, you know, uh, formula on it, then, you know, that dictates to a certain degree, you know, what, what we're going to produce and how we're going to engage audiences. So I'm really hoping that we can get to a point where we can make that shift. Mm. I wanted uh, last five minutes, so okay. Mm -hmm. I thought it's time. Let, let me get political for a moment. Oh. Let me get political. Uh, Why is he looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you start this one? Okay. So one of the big debates about audiences in the arts is about engagement with, let's say, uh, the other America that's likely not sitting in this room. Right. So there is enormous engagement, a debate going on at present about uh, does engagement equal normalization? Does, uh, do, do, do the people sitting in this room carry on doing what they're doing, what they're believing in, or is there an ethical responsibility to focus now on talking, uh, meeting in some negotiated space, uh, the people who are not sitting here? Okay. <laughs> well, I would say, I would add to that, Chris. Does engagement mean normalization or does it mean democratization democratization what do you mean democratize facilitating access to experiences to resources to creating work facilitating to listening you know it's about talking but it's also about listening to colleagues to non-traditional alliances that you may think may not work for you but when you actually begin to have a conversation you find that there is a there's common ground um, so I think it's a, it's about democratizing we need that we need that in our in, in our societies in Mexico we desperately need where our where our state has failed us in the three key issues security peace and justice the arts and the engagement and bringing us together is, is our resistance. It's the only thing that, that reminds us of our humanity and reminds us of, of our otherness as well, with the, of, our, of, our, of our otherness and of our togetherness. So I, I talk more, so I don't know if that's normal that's or really not. That's really cool, I love how you, that, you our like otherness that? and, and our it, the arts, that's, I've, no, I've not heard anyone say that quite like ever. The arts remind us of our otherness and our togetherness. togetherness yeah. Yeah. And they're both equally useful. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's what needs to be taken on the road, if you will. Um, you know, this is a big country. And there's, there are, you know, uh, I, I think if you look at the rural areas, I mean, that, that's where that message and the experiences. I mean, I'd love yeah. to see NEA fund just that kind of thing in, in rural uh, counties mm -hmm. across this country. 
um, because I think there's a, uh, you know, there's just not, there's no exposure. Mm -hmm. So when, um, I keep saying the wrong name for this uh, big company where they're every, within 20 miles there's a store, it's Walmart. Mm -hmm. Walmart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the Walton family, I, I mean, I, I, at first when I heard they were building their museum in Arkansas, I thought, really? Okay, yay. I mean, it took me a while to get there, and I, I, I went there, and it's, you know, an amazing collection. Um, and um, there was a great research study that was done upon opening of that museum, and it's the first experimental study that was ever done because it could be done because there was a whole po population that had never been to a museum in their entire life. Mm -hmm. wow. And they wow. conducted a study, mm -hmm. um, and wow. I'm sure you can find it online. Leslie, last word on this. Are you, are you, are you talking to people who disagree with you? Uh, hmm. <laughs> Do you want to? Uh, no, I, I think it's really... <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I think it is necessary, um, and I've been thinking a lot about... Uh, you know, I started my Stanton research looking just at um, what we call ethnic-specific, meaning, you know, communities of color, but I think really it's important for all communities, um, you know, no matter what your ethnicity or community that you come from or connect with, to really understand where those values come from, um, what are the fundamental um, values that create, you know, who we are as human beings, um, to really be able to relate to each other. So. And I, I think there's less of a ethnic divide than there is a class divide. Yes, absolutely. True. Well, on that note, we're going to have some questions, but before we do that, put, our, put your hands together for our fabulous panel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Molly. <laughs> we now have some time to take questions from all of you. Uh, hi, I'm Nathan Birnbaum uh, from the City of Santa Monica Cultural Affairs. Uh, wonderful panel. I agree with so much that's been said. But a uh, major factor to think about uh, when thinking about connecting with audiences is the marketplace. Uh, artists, after all, are in a marketplace and have been for thousands of years. And you can see how um, many artists, let's say visual artists, their audience, their main audience are collectors who have a lot of money. You know, let's say uh, Damien Hirst and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, other major artists who's, who seem to be playing towards collectors and, and, and uh, how does the, and, and that you see that in the performing arts too, artists need to make money. So how does that clash with the democratization uh, that we're hoping to move forward to in, in the future, especially in the US where public funding is so low? I think that this will be a very, probably a very unpopular response, but I think that arts organizations need to look at their boards, um, and their boards need to be educated. I think that um, there needs to be uh, a greater diversity of, and this will be unpopular too. I know boards, you know, you have to pay to play, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's the right model for um, democratizing the arts. Um, so I, I think, you know, and I think museums, the, certainly the big, the big boys, if you will, maybe big boys and girls, um, need to really look at what has allowed that organization to be what it is and, you know, where those collections came from and how were they acquired and is everything kosher? 
Um, and I think there just needs to be sort of a reckoning, if you will. Um, because, you know, thing, good leadership, if you have good leadership, you will have a really strong, healthy organization. And if you have honest leadership, you will have a really strong, healthy organization. But if your leadership is not those two things, I think then there's lots of trouble in the way that, uh, I, I think that you will be able to engage with your population in an in a, in a honest way if the leadership on top is behaving right, appropriately. Can I, can I just ask yeah. Christina for a second? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously there's great income inequality in Mexico where you live, right? So how do you avoid... Abysmal social injustice, right. so class differences, right. yeah. How do you avoid the artist becoming sort of the plaything of the patron, I suppose, is what I'm... That's a good one. <laughs> Sobre todo, a lot in, uh, in the arts, many of the artists are not the plaything of the patrons. They kind of, they come from the families that are the patrons. Mm -hmm. They come from the families from that wealth structure that permits them to do their art and to right. create and to work. So I just flip it, that's a big difference. I mean, yeah. where you're talking about uh, a country where, you know, 95% of the wealth is, 95% of the resources is concentrated in, you know, 5% or so of the, of the society, if not less, or 1%, 1 I think, or 2%. The wealth is concentrated, all our resources, that kind of wealth. Carlos Slim from uh, Telmex and the telephone is the companies and everything else is uh, at the, you know, really one of Forbes' top 10 millionaires or billionaires. So I think that the, how do you prevent the artist from becoming the patron? That's the one end, that they're, you, as an artist, you can work um, uh, because you are financed, uh, you have a, that, that social level. Mexico has a very, um, strong system of becas, of supports, of, of, uh, of uh, grants to artists for their creativity over the course of, of many years. This is both a good and a bad thing. The good thing is that, yes, you have an art scene that is dominated by government uh, support, by state, papa gobierno, as we call it, daddy government, that, that's in there. The, bad, the, other, the negative part is that your artist and your artistry and creativity can be, tend to be co-opted by who you've gotten into bed with, por decirlo, to say it to, in, in one way. You know, so there's that co-optation, but you're living, you know, you're, you're working, you're getting grants, you're moving, you're being asked to produce way more than any normal human being should be able to produce. Creativity is a process that takes an awfully long time. It's not about robot, about being an automaton. And many of these grants demand that you produce, you produce, you produce, or you construct, you construct infrastructure for culture that's not coming, that is not having audiences that are concerned or engaged growing at the same level. So, you know, I think that yeah. the, the whole artists are the patrons. There, there, there's two structures. At the same, there's the wealth over here and that whole community, and there's the, the, the oh, was there's the 200 indigenous uh, nations that live in Mexico City that are struggling just to get an annual um, encuentro encounter dedicated to you know the 55 languages that are spoken out of the 77 in all of Mexico, Nahuatl, Zapoteco. So that's a whole different context, I know, but I just wanted no, to throw it out there. Right. Hi, my name is David Greenfield. I'm a learning technologist. 
and I do a lot of research on arts education and outreach. And the first thing I'll say is this is a great panel. Throughout the uh, discussion, it was all I could do to not jump up and say, but, but, but. Um, so I thank you. A lot of the issues I've dealt with in my own research. Um, my question is about technology and something that Randy said about technology being a tool and it moves slowly, and it's true. It actually moves fast, but we, museums move slowly in adopting. Oh, that I totally agree with. It, I mean, completely. Um, but technology is a tool like any other tool, whiteboards, blackboards, pencils, paper, and it put into the hands of an artist. My, my own background once upon a time ago was a painter. Give me something to do and I will find something different. I will break it, I'll look underneath it, I'll use it differently. And I think, as I see technology as an outreach tool of bringing people together, especially the people that live out in the boonies, the mm -hmm. people that live um, uh, out in San Bernardino or in the inner city that are not able to get to a museum for many reasons. Eco uh, the economics of it are really hard, um, transportation is really hard, and I know that it will, a digital experience, I'll get to the question in a second, <laughs> will not uh, re replicate the experience of going in and seeing a painting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love paintings, but it will bring something out. I mean, are you thinking at all in broader terms of how technology can be utilized to create the community, um, to um, spread the culture, to work with education, to bring it out to others who will not have that experience? Yeah. Um, Thank you. Sorry, long that's all right. winded, right. but. Right. Well, you know, I started my career uh, in the 70s when what was common then was having semis filled with works of art to go to rural America. Isn't that a great? It's a great idea. Um, and I don't know if museums still do that. I mean, I saw during the 80s they stopped doing that, but I don't know if it's grown up again as a, as a concept that's useful. So, but but I, I would challenge you um, I, I suspect that there actually isn't Wi-Fi in many of these places. And um, I actually just finished reading a book about a couple that moved out to the boonies and she had her ride her bicycle eight miles a day to, with her little disc, um, you know, stick, to go to the public library to send her manuscript. She was a writer. Um, so I think that, you know, there's, there's so much work to be done, but I don't know that technology is the answer. I just want to kind of, I, 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 I understand your passion for uh, those kinds of tools. Um, and there has been a huge evolution of tools starting with the pencil, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I think that, um, wow, uh, I, I, I want to see either museums bring people to the art or I want to see museums bring the art to the people. And whatever form that is in, whether it's in performance art or, mm -hmm. you know, the Mona Lisa. June Stoddard, nonprofit fundraising consultant from Santa Monica. Um, my question is, there are so many small nonprofits that could never afford to hire you, Randy, uh, to do the research. Uh, one thought that was coming to me was to have audience members interview each other. Um, and I don't know how that could be done, but the right questions might be helpful. That's interesting. Um, That's interesting. And uh, the other would be sur online surveys that could be sent to the whole audience after. Um, something that's affordable for a, non a yes. young nonprofit to do. Such a great question. So yeah. what I tell museums is what universities are nearby and 
why don't you uh, start courting the graduate school and get someone, uh, you can get a professor interested in having his class work on a project. You probably could get a graduate student looking for a dissertation topic to work at your museum. I, I think there's so many different ways to uh, do this that's affordable and you'd still get, to me, rigor is the most important thing. Having audience members interview other audience members is, is if, they're, if they're trained to conduct these interviews, that could work, that, that could work fine. But rigor is really important if you want, if you want the people, uh, if you want policymakers to understand, uh, to, to value your data, it, it needs to be rigorous. And um, uh, otherwise it's, it won't, it, it may serve your practical purposes, but it won't probably get farther than that. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.